Chapter Seventeen, Part Two, of Run to Earth, a novel, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. Chapter Seventeen, Doubtful Society, Part Two. The association between Reginald Eversleigh and Paulina Dursky was no new alliance. Immediately after the death of Sir Oswald Eversleigh. Reginald turned his back upon London, disgusted with the scene of his poverty and humiliation, eager to find forgetfulness of his bitter disappointments in the fever and excitement of a more brilliant city than any to be found in Great Britain. He went to Paris, that capital which he had shunned since the death of Mary Goodwin, but whither he returned eagerly now, thirsting for riot and excitement, any opiate by which he might lull to rest, the bitter memories of the past month. He was familiar with the wildest haunts of that city of dissipation, and he was speedily engulfed in the vortex of vice and folly. If he had been a rich man, this life might have gone on for ever. But without money a man counts for very little in such a circle as that wherein Reginald alone could find delight. And to the inhabitants of that region, five hundred a year would seem a kind of pauperism. Sir Reginald contrived to keep the actual amount of his income a secret, locked in his own breast. His acquaintances and associates knew that he was not rich, but they knew no more. At the French Opera House he saw Paulina Dursky for the first time. She was seated in one of the smaller boxes, dressed in pure white, with white camellias in her hair. Her faithful companion, Matilda Brewer, was seated in the shadow of the curtains, and formed a foil for the beautiful Austrian. Reginald Eversleigh entered the house with a dissipated and fashionable young Parisian, a man who, like his companion, had wasted youth, character, and fortune in the tainted atmosphere of disreputable haunts and midnight assemblies. The two men took their places in the stalls, and amused themselves between the acts by a scrutiny of the occupants of the house. Hector Lyons, the Parisian, was familiar with the inmates of every box. "'Do you see that beautiful, fair-haired woman with the white camellias in her hair?' he said, after he had drawn the attention of the Englishman to several distinguished people. "'That is Madame Dursky, the young and wealthy widow of an Austrian officer, and one of the most celebrated beauties in Paris.' "'She is very handsome,' answered Reginald carelessly. "'But hers is a cold style of loveliness, "'too much like a face moulded out of wax.' "'Wait till you see her animated,' replied Hector Lyons. "'We will go to her box presently.' "'When the curtain fell on the close of the following act, "'the two men left the stalls "'and made their way to Madame Dursky's box. "'She received them courteously, "'and Reginald Eversleigh speedily perceived "'that her beauty, fair and wax-like as it was, did not lack intellectual grace. She talked well, and her manner had the tone of good society. Reginald was surprised to see her attended only by the little Englishwoman in her dress of threadbare black velvet. After the opera, Sir Reginald and Hector Lyons accompanied Madame Dursky to her apartments in the Rue de Faubourg, St. Honoré, and there the baronet beheld higher play than he had ever seen before in a private house presided over by a woman. On this occasion the beautiful widow herself occupied a place at the Rouge et Noir table, and Reginald beheld enough to enlighten him as to her real character. 
he saw that with this woman the love of play was a passion a profound and soul-absorbing delight he saw the eyes which in repose seemed of so cold a brightness emit vivid flashes of feverish light he saw the fair blush-rose tinted cheek glow with a hectic crimson he beheld the woman with her mask thrown aside abandoned to the influence of her master passion after this night reginald eversleigh was a frequent visitor at the apartments of the austrian widow for him as for her the fierce excitement of the gaming-table was an irresistible temptation in her elegantly appointed drawing-rooms he met rich men who were desperate players but he met few men who were likely to be dupes here neither skill nor bribery availed him and he was dependent on the caprices of chance the balance was tolerably even and he left paris neither richer nor poorer for his acquaintance with paulina dursky but that acquaintance exercised a very powerful influence over his destiny nevertheless there was a strange fascination in the society of the austrian widow a nameless indefinable charm which few were able to resist a bitter experience of vice and folly had robbed reginald eversleigh's heart and mind of all youth's freshness and confidence and for him this woman seemed only what she was an adventuress dangerous to all who approached her he knew this and yet he yielded to the fascination of her presence night after night he haunted the rooms in the rue de faubourg st honore he went there even when he was too poor to play and could only stand behind paulina's chair a patient and devoted cavalier for a long time she seemed to be scarcely aware of his devotion she received him as she received her other guests she met him always with the same cold smile the same studied courtesy but one evening when he went to her apartments earlier than usual he found her alone and in a melancholy mood then for the first time he became aware that the life she led was odious to her that she loathed the hateful vice of which she was the slave she was wont to be very silent about herself and her own feelings but that night she cast aside all reserve and spoke with a passionate earnestness which made her seem doubly charming to reginald eversleigh i am so degraded a creature that perhaps you have never troubled yourself to wonder how i became the thing i am she said and yet you must surely have marvelled to see a woman of high birth fall into the depths in which you find me fallen so low as to be the companion of gamesters a gamester myself i will tell you the secret of my life reginald eversleigh lifted his hand with a deprecating gesture dear madam tell me nothing i implore you i admire and respect you he said to me you must always appear the most beautiful of women whatever may be the nature of your surroundings yes the most beautiful echoed paulina with passionate scorn you men think that to praise a woman's beauty is to console her for every humiliation i have long held that which you call my beauty as the poorest thing on earth so little happiness has its possession won for me i will tell you the story of my life it is the only justification i have i am ready to listen so long as you speak of yourself your words must have the deepest interest for me i was reared amongst gamesters reginald eversleigh continued paulina dursky with the same passionate intensity of manner 
my father was an incorrigible gambler and before i had emerged from childhood to girlhood the handsome fortune which should have been mine had been squandered as a girl the rattle of the dice the clamour of the rouge et noir table were the most familiar sounds to my ears night after night night after night i have kept watch at my own window and have seen the lighted windows of my father's rooms and have known that grim poverty was drawing nearer and nearer as the long hours of those sleepless nights went by my poor paulina my mother died young exhausted by the perpetual fever of anxiety which the gambler's wife is doomed to suffer she died and i was left alone a woman beautiful if you will and as the world supposed heiress to a large fortune for none knew how entirely the wealth which should have been mine had melted away in those nights of dissipation and folly people knew that my father played and played desperately but few knew the extent of his losses after my mother's death my father insisted on my doing the honours of his house i received his friends i stood by his chair as he played écarté or sat by his side and noted the progress of the game at the rouge et noir table then first i felt the fatal passion which i can but believe to be a taint in my very blood slowly and gradually the fascinating vice assumed its horrible mastery i watched the progress of the play i learned to understand that science which was the one all-absorbing pursuit of those around me then i played myself first taking a hand at écarté with some of the younger guests half in sport and then venturing a small golden coin at the rouge et noir table while my admirers praised my darling as if i had been some capricious child in those assemblies i was always the only woman except matilda brewer who was then my governess my father would have no female guests at these nightly orgies the presence of women would have been a hindrance to the delights of the gaming-table at first i felt all the bitterness of my position i looked forward with unspeakable dread to the dreary future in which i should find destitution staring me in the face but when once the gamester's madness had seized upon me i thought no more of that dreary future i became as reckless as my father and his guests i forgot everything in the excitement of the moment to be lucky at the gaming-table was to be happy to lose was despair thus my youth went by till the day when my father told me that colonel dursky had offered me his hand and fortune and that i had no alternative but to accept him oh then your first marriage was no love-match cried reginald eagerly a love-match exclaimed paulina contemptuously no it was a marriage of convenience dictated by a father who set less value on his daughter's happiness than on a good hand of cards my father told me i must choose between leopold dursky and ruin this house cannot shelter you much longer he said for myself there is flight i can go to america and lose my identity in strange cities i cannot remain in vienna to be pointed at as the beggared count vesci but with you for my companion i should be tied hand and foot as a wanderer and an adventurer i may prosper alone but as a wanderer burdened with a helpless woman failure would be certain it is not a question of choice paulina he said resolutely there is no alternative you must become the wife of leopold dursky and you consented 
i ask you reginald eversleigh could i refuse for me love was a word which had no meaning leopold durski was more than double my age but in outward seeming he was a gentleman he was reported to be wealthy he had a high position at the austrian court i was so utterly helpless so desolate so despairing that it is scarcely strange if i accepted the fate my father pressed upon me careless as to a future which held no joy for me beyond the pleasure of the gaming-table i left the house of one gambler to ally myself to the fortunes of another for leopold durski was my father's companion and friend and the same master passion swayed both it was strange that my father himself a ruined gamester should have become the dupe of a man whose reported wealth was as great a sham as his own but so it was i exchanged poverty with one master for poverty with another master my new life was an existence of perpetual falsehood and trickery i occupied a splendid house in the most fashionable quarter of vienna but that house was maintained by my husband's winnings at the gaming-table and it was my task to draw together the dupes whose money was to support the false semblance of grandeur which surrounded me the dupes came i had my little court of flatterers but the courtiers paid dearly for their allegiance to their queen i was the snare which was set to entrap the birds whose feathers my husband was to pluck if i had been like other women my position would have been utterly intolerable to me i should have found some means of escape from a life so hateful a degradation so shameful and you made no attempt to escape none i was a gambler the vice which had degraded my husband had degraded me we had both sunk to the same level and i had no right to reproach him for infamy which i shared we had little affection for each other colonel durski had sought me only because i was fitted to adorn his reception-rooms and attract the dupes who were to suffer by their acquaintance with him but if there was little love between us we at least never quarrelled he treated me always with studied courtesy and i never upbraided him for the deception by which he had obtained my hand my father disappeared suddenly from vienna and only after his departure was it discovered that his fortune had long vanished and that he had for several years been completely insolvent his creditors tittered a cry of execration but in great cities the cries of such victims are scarcely heard my reception-rooms were still thronged by aristocratic guests and no one cared to remember my father's infamy this life had lasted three years when my husband died and left me penniless i sold my jewels and came to this city where for a year and a half i have lived as my husband lived in vienna on the fortune of the gaming-table i am growing weary of paris and it may be that paris is growing weary of me i suppose i shall go to london next and next who knows ah reginald eversleigh believe me there are many moments of my life in which i think that the little walk from here to the river would cut the knot of all my difficulties to-night i am surrounded with anxieties steeped in degradation hemmed in by obstacles that shut me out of all peaceful resting-places to-morrow i might be lying very quietly in the morgue paulina for pity's sake ah me these are idle words are they not said madame durski with a weary sigh and now i have told you my history reginald eversleigh and it is for you to judge whether there is any excuse for such a creature as i am 
Sir Reginald pitied this hopeless, friendless woman as much as it was in him to pity any one except himself, and tried to utter some words of consolation. She looked up at him as he spoke to her, with a glance in which he saw a deeper feeling than gratitude. Then it was that Reginald declared himself the devoted lover of the woman who had revealed to him the strange story of her life. He told her of the influence which she exercised over him, the fascination which he had sought in vain to resist. He declared himself attached to her by an affection which would know no change, come what might. But he did not offer this friendless woman the shelter of his name, the ostensible position which would have been hers had she become his wife. Even when beneath the sway of a woman's fascination, Reginald Eversleigh was cold and calculating. Paulina Dursky was poor, and doubtless deeply in debt. She was a gambler, and the companion of gamblers. She was, therefore, no fitting wife for a man who looked upon marriage as a stepping-stone by which he might yet redeem his fallen fortunes. Paulina received his declaration with an air of simulated coldness, but Reginald Eversleigh could perceive that it was only simulated, and that he had awakened a real affection in the heart of this desolate woman. "'Do not speak to me of love,' she said. "'To me such words can promise no happiness. "'My love could only bring shame and misery on the man to whom it was given. "'Let me tread my dreary pathway alone, Reginald, alone to the very end.' "'Much was said after this by Reginald and the woman who loved him, "'and who was yet too proud to confess her love. "'Paulina Dursky was not an inexperienced girl to be persuaded by romantic speeches.' She had acquired knowledge of the world in a hard and bitter school. She could fully fathom the base selfishness of the man who pretended to love her, and she understood why it was that he shrank from offering her the only real pledge of his truth. "'I will speak frankly to you, Paulina,' he said. "'I am too poor to marry.' "'Yes,' she answered bitterly. "'I comprehend. You are too poor to marry a penniless wife.' and I am not likely to find a rich one. But believe me that my love is none the less sincere because I shrink from asking you to ally yourself to misery. So be it, Sir Reginald. I am willing to accept your love for what it is, a wise and prudent affection, such as a man of the world may freely indulge in without fear that his folly may cost him too dearly. You will come to my house. I shall see you night after night amongst the reckless idlers who gather round me. You will pay me compliments all the year round, and bring me bonbons on New Year's Day. And some day, when I have grown old and haggard, you will all at once forget the fact of our acquaintance, and I shall see you no more. Let it be so. It is pleasant for a woman to fancy herself beloved, however false the fancy may be. I will shut my eyes and dream that you love me, Reginald. And this was all. No more was ever said of love between these two. But from that hour Reginald was more constant than ever in his attendance on the beautiful widow. The time came when she grew weary of Paris, and when those who had lost money began to shun the seductive delights of her nightly receptions. Reginald Eversleigh was not slow to perceive that the brilliant throng grew thin, the most distinguished guests conspicuous by their absence. He urged Paulina to leave Paris for London and he himself selected the lonely villa on the banks of the Thames, in which he found a billiard-room, lighted from the roof, that was easily converted into a secret chamber. It was by his advice that Paulina Dursky altered her line of conduct on taking up her abode in England, 
and refrained altogether from any active share in the ruinous amusements for which men frequented her receptions. "'It was all very well for you to take a hand at Ecarté, or to take your place at the Rouge Noir table in Paris,' Reginald said when he discussed this question. "'But here it will not do. The English are full of childish prejudices, and to see a woman at the gaming-table would shock those prejudices. Let me play for you. I will find the capital, and we will divide the profits of each night's speculation. For your part, you will have only to look beautiful.' and to lure the golden-feathered birds into the net, and sometimes, perhaps, when I am playing écarté with one of your admirers, behind whose chair you may happen to be standing, you may contrive to combine a flattering interest in his play with a substantial benefit to mine. Paulina's eyelids fell, and a crimson flush dyed her face, but she uttered no exclamation of anger or disgust, and yet, she understood only too well the meaning of Sir Reginald's words. She knew that he wished her to aid him in a deliberate system of cheating. She knew this, and she did not withdraw her friendship from this man. Alas, no, she loved him, not because she believed him to be good and honorable, not because she was blinded to the baseness of his nature. She loved him in spite of her knowledge of his real character." she yielded to the influence of an infatuation which she was so powerless to resist that she might almost be pardoned for believing herself the victim of a baleful destiny. "'It is my fate,' she murmured to herself, after this last revelation of her lover's infamy. "'It must needs be my fate, since women with less claim to be loved than I possess are so happy as to win the devotion of good and brave men.' It is my fate to love a cheat and trickster, on whose constancy I have so poor a hold that a breath may sever the miserable bond that unites us. Victor Carrington was one of the first persons whom Reginald Eversleigh introduced to Madame Dursky after her arrival in England. She was pleased with the quiet and graceful manners of the Frenchman, but she was at a loss to understand Sir Reginald's intimate association with a man who was at once poor and obscure. She told Sir Reginald as much the next time she saw him alone. "'I know that in most of your friendships, convenience and self-interest reign paramount over what you call sentimentality, and yet you choose for your friend this Carrington, whom no one knows, and who is, you tell me, even poorer than yourself. You must have a hidden motive, Reginald, and a strong one.' A dark shade passed over the face of the baronet. "'I have my reasons,' he said. Victor Carrington was once useful to me. At least he endeavoured to be so. If he failed, the obligation is none the less, and he is a man who will have his bond. End of chapter 17, part 2